Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses, featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. It's July 21st, 2017. Today also happens to be exactly six months since Donald Trump took office as the 45th president of the United States of America. Hello and welcome back to the Bloomberg Benchmark podcast. It's July 21st, 2016. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor at Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Kate Smith, an editor here with Bloomberg in New York. This week, with the Republican convention going on in Cleveland and Donald Trump close with Hillary Clinton in the polls, we've decided to ask the question, what would the U.S. economy look like if Trump were elected president? And it's a great question. In fact, it's such a good question that we don't want to just sit here and speculate about what could it be like. No, this is going to be a first for us. We are actually going to take the Bloomberg time machine one year into the future to July 2017 and listen to our show about how things have gone during Trump's first six months as president. Are you ready, Kate? I sure am. All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome back to the Bloomberg Benchmark Podcast. It's July 21st, 2017. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor at Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Kate Smith, an editor with Bloomberg News in New York. So, Kate, what's new on the Pokemon beat? Well, things have just kept getting more and more interesting since I took over the Pokemon desk back last fall. So now there are 1.5 billion people playing the game worldwide, and Nintendo's market value passed Apple two months ago to become number one in the world. So the group of 20 has actually added Pokemon as an official agenda topic for next month's meeting of the finance ministers in Germany. And there's even talk that policymakers plan to urge Nintendo to step up its development of Pokemon updates to stimulate like global growth. It's just fascinating, unbelievable. <laughs> Can't believe it's been one year since this phenomenon took hold and began changing the way we go about our daily lives. And work here has really changed since Bloomberg limited our Pokemon playing to only one hour a day in the office. It's but really tough. It is tough. But to be honest, you know, in you know, speaking to other people, we're the lucky ones. I've heard that a lot of employers have actually limited it to 30 minutes of play a day. But you know what? Anyway, we're here to talk about something way more interesting than Pokemon somehow. Today also happens to be exactly six months since Donald Trump took office as the 45th president of the United States of America. That's right. And joining us to talk about it all is Neil Dutta, head of U.S. economics at Renaissance Macro Research. Neil, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. All right. So it's been an interesting time so far in 2017. A lot of Trump's critics were talking about how he would sink the economy. But like most of his predecessors, he's taken a more pragmatic stance to achieve some of his goals. Uh, Immigration is slowing down due to new restrictions, and there's some uncertainty over how the rollback of Obamacare is going to play out in Congress. And there's some international tension over trade, as we expected. But President Trump has used fiscal policy to add some juice to the economy. And with bond yields rising, the Fed has raised interest rates for a third time since December 2015. Neil, how surprised are you by how things have gone so far? Well, you know, I guess I'm not uh, that surprised. Um, Going into the year, you kind of have to assume that, uh, you know, you know, and You didn't want to think that Trump was going to want to get in there and do a bad job. So um, my sense is that uh, you have stronger fiscal policy that's pressuring uh, inflation higher. 
And, uh, you know, I think uh, given that the economy had some momentum going into this year, the uh, the Fed is not really um, accelerating uh, their path uh, just yet. And, you know, my sense is that you, know, you have stronger fiscal policy um, out of the Trump administration. You have more restrictive immigration. That's uh, putting upward pressure on inflation. So I think that would be what I would expect economically um, coming out of a Trump administration. So one issue that a lot of people overlooked a year ago was when Trump said that, quote, we have to rebuild the infrastructure in our country. So now he's really followed up on that through working with Congress to pass a $100 billion plan to kickstart roads, bridges, and rail projects all around the country, and really encouraging states and cities to take similar action by taking advantage of low interest rates through municipal bonds. And of course, those for our listeners who don't know are the vehicles in which state and local governments can issue debt to spur the economy and start infrastructure projects. He's also signed a defensive reauthorization bill that increases spending by 10%. So how much is this going to actually help the economy? Well, I guess it'll help the economy somewhat. The question is the, the extent to which, you know, he's willing uh, to offset that with cuts down the road. Um, you know, there is a lot of debate about how much of a multiplier you'll get from fiscal policy. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, given how low interest rates still are, um, there's probably very minimal cost to going this route. And so I think uh, it's probably a good thing, uh, you know, for the economy. You have stronger fiscal policy and you don't really have much of a monetary offset. And, uh, you know, if you look at where the bond market is, has been, it's, you know, you can make a very strong case that it's screaming for fiscal stimulus. You know, $100 million on roads and bridges isn't really a big deal. Um, you know, actually, we, we misspoke there. It should be $100 billion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I, I think, you know, one of the one of the points that I would make about all this is that when people think about infrastructure, they think about roads and bridges, like you just mentioned, you know, these sort of ribbon cutting ceremonies where politicians get in front of a, uh, a red tape with a big scissor and, um, and a hard hat or something like that. And, um, and it's not immediately clear to me that um, we actually need to be spending money on roads and bridges. Right. I mean, um, if you look at uh, transportation spending, highway and street spending as a share of GDP, it's pretty much higher now than it was on average from 2002 to 2007. There are other areas of infrastructure, you know, that are actually less sexy that probably have more need uh, for spending, you know, things like um you know, government hospital and health facilities, um, given the fact that uh, we have veterans coming uh, or, uh, you know, uh, veterans coming back from overseas war fighting, um, water supply, um, things like pipe fixtures and so forth. Um, we're not we're under investing there, uh, it seems to me, if you look at the data. Um, so, you know, roads and bridges are nice. Um, Trump uh, has mentioned LaGuardia Airport, you know, every other week. And uh, it should be noted that LaGuardia is already getting an infrastructure revamp. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing that I would just say is that the net effect of all of this is inflationary. I mean, if you're an investor and you want to play for, you know, an aggressive fiscal policy stance coupled with restrictive immigration laws and anti-trade and anti-trade agenda, I would be... Um, buying tips and selling treasuries. I want to jump in quickly. You mentioned the infrastructure question. I, 
I want to pose a question for you. Before I took over the Pokemon beat, I was a municipal bond reporter. And one thing that was really interesting was that even though you had, you know, generational lows for interest rates, you saw a huge contraction of the municipal market. And of course, you know, for listeners who don't know what the municipal market is, this is the vehicle in which states and cities finance road, bridge, all sorts of infrastructure projects. So even though rates were at lows, even though you saw all these incentives going on to build these things, states and cities still didn't want to do it. So, I mean, I guess, Neil, Scott, what do you guys think of that? I mean, what's going on now that we think that's actually going to stimulate something that, you know, obviously couldn't happen two, three, four years ago? I think one uh, issue uh, politically uh, is that... um you're seeing, I mean, basically monetary policy doesn't have as much scope to stimulate uh, as it did four or five years ago. And so there's an additional burden, I guess, or or a growing burden on fiscal authorities to kind of move the needle on the economy. You know, you're seeing that clearly in uh, in Japan. You're seeing it to some extent in Europe. Uh, You've already seen it in uh, our neighbors to the north in Canada, where they've announced uh, a more aggressive fiscal uh, package with the new government under Trudeau coming in this year. And so I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing it is because, um, you know, typically when we think of sort of cyclical demand stabilization, we tend to think of monetary policy. But, um, you know, given uh, that uh, monetary policy is basically, you know, I mean, at its end, there's more of a uh, sort of there, there's an increasing pressure on uh, on fiscal authorities to do something. And on top of that, it seems like a perfect opportunity, because if you look at, um, you know, what's sort of on the top of um, of most people's minds, um, you know, four years ago, um, you know, the, I would argue that the budget deficit and debt was high on the minds of a lot of Americans today. It's near the bottom if you look at it in terms of, uh, you know, what, what issues people care about the most. Um, so the political pressure of reducing the budget deficit isn't as strong today or as pervasive today as it was five years ago. And so, you know, I think for all these factors, uh, you're seeing more of a push and you have a new government coming in. They're going to want to do something <laughs> given, given the U.S. election sort of cycle and the legislative calendar. And this sort of, you know, 24 hour news cycle. And I mean, basically the window for a new government to get something down feels like it gets shorter and shorter with each new government. Yeah, central banks are certainly welcoming this push on fiscal policy, especially Fed Chair Janet Yellen. But as we all know, she's not going to be around much longer. Uh, We're going to take a break right now and we'll talk more about that right after this message. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses. Featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. As we were just saying, uh, Neil and Kate, we're six months away now from another momentous date, January 31st, 2018. That's going to be Janet Yellen's last day as chair of the Federal Reserve. Speculation is growing in Washington about who President Trump will pick to lead the central bank. What will be the main challenges for the next Fed chair? Well, my view is that the next Fed chair's biggest problem is going to be higher inflation, right? I mean, for years now, we've been talking about low inflation, low inflation, um, deflation risks, uh, the Fed running out of ammunition, and uh, the Fed continually bending to, uh, 
you know, the lower sort of implied rate path that has been put out by the market. And, you know, I think given the confluence of factors that we're assuming here, which is stronger fiscal policy, anti-trade, anti-immigration, those are inflationary policies. I mean, if the biggest secular force for disinflation in the last 25 years has been the opening up of the global economy, what does the push to protectionism mean? I think it's pretty obvious. So this is something the Fed's going to have to deal with. And I would argue that, um, you know, in some respects, you could make an argument that Yellen should actually stay um, if I were actually advising um, the president on who to, who to nominate. I'd argue for her to stay because a lot of the folks that have been coming up the ranks don't even know what high inflation is. They have no idea about how to respond in a rising inflationary environment. So much of what's been going on right now is trying to come up with innovative ways of, of combating disinflation. So um, to me, that would be the issue for, for, for the central bank. At least I mean, also one of the, the largest you know items that has happened in coming from Washington this year has also been the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which has died. So Trump formally notified Mexico and Canada that he wants to renegotiate NAFTA so he can, in his own words, of course, bring jobs back to America. And trade with China has really started to plunge after Trump announced that 20% tariff on all Chinese goods. China's retaliated with similar levies on U.S. exports, and the Chinese are also very unhappy with being labeled as currency manipulators. They've canceled the strategic and economic dialogue that took place over the last eight years, although Trump said he wasn't planning on doing it anyway. So, Scott, Neil, is this net negative for the U.S. and the world? I mean, I think so. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, again, I mean, you know, now you're, you're, we're sort of talking about a different situation and it would be, it's not clear to me exactly how the Fed would respond. I mean, you're, you know, you're talking about uh, a collapse in global trade uh, brought about by political events that would have repercussions to U.S. growth, which the Fed may have to actually ease policy in front of. So, you know, look, I mean, th there's a couple of things here. I think first, globalization in the main is, is a good thing. I mean, but I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, the opening up of markets, uh, trading, um, the sort of uh, specialization that you see across economies. Um, you know, I think those rules, um, you know, th th that still applies. At the same time, it should also be noted that there's no law that says trade has to grow at some sort of exponential rate relative to GDP. I mean, you're already starting to see a slowing in global trade. Um, that's pretty much been the, the case since 2010. A lot of that has to do with the fact that, um, you know, there hasn't been a big policy um, announcement, right? I mean, so much of uh, the, the, I mean, if, you know, in the 90s and even early, you know, to mid 2000s, a very reliable rule of thumb that we would use is that for every one unit increase in global production, trade would grow by two units. Today, the relationship is one for one. And, um, you know, a lot of that has to do with the sort of uh, the fact that we haven't had a big, uh, the, the, we, we sort of, we had the one time opening up of the global economy and the gains have, have been sort of exhausted. Uh, you've had a lot of emerging markets going to different sort of growth strategies and that's put pressure on trade. Again, uh, you've had, you've had sort of, uh, sort of insourcing back to the home market, uh, given the uh, depreciation in the dollar um, that we've seen. So. So while I think, uh, you know, sort of a protectionist stance is, is a bad thing, I, I would just say that, um, you know, trade activity has not been as elastic as it used to be. Um, 
Um, so again, I mean, this could be just a, a case of politicians kind of top ticking uh, the trade the trade story. Yeah, and you know, the IMF has really been on the case, just uh, sounding the alarm about possible decline in global trade growth this year. They they they, they just issued their uh, revised forecast for 2017, and um, they're talking about how growth is going to be flat for a third year, still uh, one of the lowest rates since the global financial crisis. So this trade tension really isn't helping that that much. Uh, uh, in terms of global growth, you know, the situation might be slightly different in America where we're getting that boost from fiscal policy. But, you know, Christine Lagarde, she's just been really, really vocal in every appearance I've seen her lately talking about this and, you know, even venturing into the, the political in some ways. Neil, I want to jump in and ask you one question. We've been kind of talking about this a little bit high level about what we do with fiscal policy and monetary policy in regards to kind of more protectionist stance on trading. But how about for the average American? I mean, are we going to start to see the price of goods rising? You know, the iPhones that, you know, are so ubiquitous throughout all of America, really, and across all incomes, really. Everyone has an iPhone, right? Um I mean, are we going to start to see that, you know, kind of the quality of life and consumerism that we've gone, kind of gotten so used to? Are we going to see a clamp on that if, if we indeed go through with all of these protectionist theories? I mean, I, I, I would think so. I would think so. I mean, let's look at what's... Are we going to have to go back to flip phones? <laughs> well, I don't think that, that would, we would see like an, you know, an arrest in terms of the technological advancement. But in terms of the price for goods it would go up i mean think about it right i mean i mean the, the the issue the bigger issue here is that the benefits of trade are widespread the costs are centralized it's very easy for a politician to get in front of a bunch of steel workers and say i saved their jobs what's unseen is the fact that you know the prices for your cars may be higher you know i'm not the first person to say something like that i mean it, you know to me it's pretty obvious Look at look at the inflation data that we've seen even in the last few years. Apparel prices, for example, had been falling year after year after year after year. More recently, that's basically stopped. I mean, apparel prices have stopped falling. And I, I think, again, it goes back to our earlier discussion about we're no longer seeing a widening out of the global trade um, story. So this whole idea about the world is flat, well, the world is no longer flattening, I guess, is, is what you could say. And some of the policies that are being um, advocated would actually go in the opposite direction. I think it's definitely possible that uh, that you get an inflationary response over time if economies um, become more inward. And I think that that brings costs to the very people that uh, that think they're going to be helped by more protectionism. I mean, a lot of the research that I've seen has shown that protectionism actually hurts those at the lower end. That's right. It, it, we've seen these prices rising, and it's not clear if the jobs are going to come back or if the wages are actually going to rise to uh, support that. But anyway, um, we'll, we'll leave it there. It's been a fascinating six months uh, so far. Surely the next three and a half years at least will be uh, even more interesting. Neil, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Wow, that was really cool. Yeah, I can't believe how crazy Pokemon gets in the future. And I can't believe I'm going to be the editor of the Pokemon Beat. I know. <laughs> what did you think of how things turn out a year from now? You know what? I don't think it's I don't think the world is going to end, which is which is a net plus, right? It seems a little bit more level-headed than maybe everyone's screaming about. What do you think? I I don't know. I mean, 
you know, this was definitely a lot better than I thought things were, would turn out <laughs> after having a coup, all, the, all this craziness over the last uh, few months and seeing how the, the election campaigns have turned out. You know, we can only hope that this is our uh, one of our best case scenarios, right? I hope so. I certainly hope so. <laughs> Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal at Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to us and follow us on Twitter. You can find Scott at Scott Landman, and you can find me at By Kate Smith. I'll see you next week. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses. Featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99.